1 Peter chapter 5. Begin reading in verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In the Puritan Golden Treasury, Edward Reynolds, Reynolds rather, stated this concerning Satan, the archenemy of God. He said, Satan has three titles given in the scriptures, setting forth his malignity against the church of God. A dragon to note his malice, a serpent to note his subtlety, and a lion to note his strength. Since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been attacking the people of God. He has been lying to them, deceiving them, tempting them, injuring them, mocking them, accusing them, and seeking to destroy them. As Reynolds noted, he is malicious, subtle, and strong in his advances as he attempts to accomplish these things. And he is the designer and orchestrator of all things evil. Every sin derives from Satan. As John notes in 1 John 3, he has been sinning from the beginning. His nature is completely evil and he exudes wickedness with every fiber of his being. He hates God and he hates the people of God. And he is the perpetrator behind all of the persecution and suffering that God's people encounter living life in a fallen world. He casts assaults upon God's people continuously and he accuses the brethren day and night. And as a result of this powerful being wreaking havoc on the people of God, We need protection from him. If we are going to stand firm and endure persecution and suffering to the end, when we meet Christ face to face and receive our rewards from him, then we must cling to God and the means of protection for us. He is currently assaulting the people of God in several ways. He assaults us in the mind as he uses the influences of this world to penetrate our minds as we give ourselves to those things and to our surroundings. He assaults the family as he is trying to destroy the family at the seams, ripping apart the very basic institution of marriage. He is assaulting the the doctrine that 
great doctrine of the faith that we have that has been passed down from generation to generation. He is seeking to continue to infiltrate that doctrine to cause it to be less than what it is, to change it subtly. And he is assaulting the church. He is going after leadership in the church. He is going after the bride of Christ in so many various ways. In our text this morning, Peter transitions from exhorting elders to be the God-ordained leaders that he ordained them to be, that he called them to be, who lead God's sheep to be committed to Christ in the midst of their suffering, to exhorting the congregation as a whole with several imperatives to be, to be the people of God that he has called them to be as they endure suffering and persecution in this life. In fact, in verses 5 through 9, we find five instructions which, when obeyed, provide protection for God's people in the crosshairs of satanic assault. And we'll cover two of those instructions found in verses 5 through 7 today, and the others we will cover next time, Lord willing. First instruction given to provide protection for God's people is this. It is submit to elders. Submit to elders. Look at verse 5. It says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. We see here the transition. As he transitioned from exhorting the elders that he began to do in verse 1, here in verse 5, he transitions to this group within the church, this group of younger men. The term likewise there connects these exhortations back to the previous context, showing this connected shift. So his train of thought is is similar as he has just talked to elders. He's just moving down the pipeline here and talking now to the church. But notice before turning to the entire congregation, Peter first addresses you younger men, he says. You younger men. The text doesn't clearly indicate why he separates this group from the pack initially. But it is most likely that he was calling out those who might struggle more with submission to church leadership because of their immaturity. Pride and immaturity are often associated with youth in the Bible. We know this from several places. If you read the book of Proverbs, you see the young man and who Solomon's, was Solomon's sons often as he is talking to them and he's telling them, listen, you are prone to immaturity. You are prone to be overtaken by the temptations of Satan and you need to be aware of these things. And Paul commands Timothy to to buck that trend in 1 Timothy 4.12 when he writes, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself to be an example of those who believe. Young men are often the most aggressive and headstrong in their views and decisions about things. And though the congregation as a whole certainly needs to be reminded of the command to submit to their elders, young men especially need to adhere to it. 
because their pride can set them up as sitting ducks for Satan to fire darts at. Their immaturity can cause dissension in the midst of the congregation and cause the rest of the folks to begin to doubt the decisions made by the collective leadership of the elders for the good of the people. Many of you here today are young men. And you need to heed the command given by Peter to submit to your elders. Why? For your, for your good and for your protection. Young men are at the prime of their life, so to speak. They come to a crossroads. Again, as so many of you are in this room at a crossroads of deciding what the Lord has for you in this life, what decisions you're going to make, which road you're going to walk down, who you're going to marry, what you're going to do for a living, all of those things. How you're going to serve in the church. And at this point in life, because you're coming out from under that hedge of of your parents and, and your families, now coming to make these decisions, you might think, I have this all together and I'm ready to roll. And the reality is that you need to heed this command and understand that, that this is a time in life when you must heed these warnings in Scripture to young people so that you don't get full of pride and begin to make bad decisions. Bad decisions by bucking the church leadership because you think you know better than them. Or your parents who have given you so much wisdom over the years. Do you think you're ready to make those calls and you will need to make those calls and you will need to make those decisions, but you need to come to grips with the reality that Peter is calling out this group of young men because this is a real temptation for young men to be proud. And so Peter says, humble yourselves, submit to your elders. And you will find protection in that. To submit or subject yourself to the elders means to willingly line yourself up under their leadership and decision-making. The attitude one is to have is not to be grudgingly or frustrated. It's not to be done grudgingly. It's not to be done in a frustrated manner, but rather it is to be willing. That's the root of this word. That is to say that we are to submit to our elders out of love for Christ and his church. That's the, that's the backbone to this command here. Listen, you may not always agree with the decision or the direction something is going in the church, but you are commanded to line up under it because you desire to manifest love for Jesus Christ and for his people. That's the heart of this word. That's the heart of, of submission. The same idea is true with a wife to her husband. She may not always agree with her husband. Sometimes her husband is a dummy and makes dumb decisions. But she willingly lines up under him not because she's in full agreement, and not because she doesn't see the error of his way, but because she loves Christ. And she loves Christ's church. 
We are to submit out of love for Christ and his church. This takes discipline. It takes discipline to regularly attack the impulses and the temptations towards wanting to please self above everything else, doesn't it? But the reality is that submission brings protection from Satan's assaults because it involves you having to trust the ones you are submitting to, to care for you. And you do that instead of relying upon your own impulses. We know what happens when we rely upon our own impulses, don't we? When we give ourselves to our feelings, when we give ourselves to our own wisdom, we know the results of that. 99% of the time, it's not good. And we might start to get our own ideas and our, our own feelings about, about the church and about how that's to be done and about how people are to operate within the church. And let me tell you, that's not good. That's why Peter says you need to line yourself up under those who care for your souls. Remember, he has just spent four verses telling elders in a very, very direct way. This is how you exercise authority. And this is the attitude that you are to have when you exercise that authority. The elders have been warned. The elders have been motivated because they're going to stand before their chief shepherd. And so those elders who are submitting to the first four verses of chapter 5, you better believe are going to care for your souls. And so you can trust them. And when you trust them and when you submit to their leadership and their authority, you come under a protection from your own wisdom and your own impulses, which is helpful and necessary. Because that leadership who is caring for you is going to also keep you accountable. It's the beauty of the church. They're going to keep you accountable to live faithfully in both good and difficult situations. Remember the context here. Remember the overall context of 1 Peter standing firm in the midst of suffering. Remember who Peter is writing to here. Who he's, these young men who he's talking to are, these very young men are, are being assaulted. They're being persecuted by Satan through the means of, of government and those kinds of things. And he's saying, listen, in times like this, when your impulses tell you to, to do this or to that, when your pride is, is gearing up within you to maybe make some of these decisions, you need right now to submit to your elders. It's very, very helpful and provides protection. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, why would I ever submit to elders in a church? <laughs> Why would this even be a thing that I would do? And Because the truth is that maybe you have never submitted to Christ as Lord. When a person submits to Christ as Lord, when they come to the Savior, he gives them a new heart, a new heart that is then directed towards him to, to obey him, to love him. And, and to, when they see the commands in Scripture, they, they long to obey those commands, not perfectly, it's not times they don't get tripped up. But they long to obey Christ, and so they see this, and, 
And they want to do this. They desire to do this. But if that's not you, then then you need to first submit to Christ. You submit to Christ, and he's going to give you a new heart, and then he's going to enable you to, to submit to the leadership that he's placed in your life. You need to come to the one who lived the perfect life in your place and who died to pay for the guilt of your sin and who rose again. He's the one who conquered sin and death for his people. You need to come to him. So when you submit to Christ, then you are going to have a willing heart to submit to those whom he tells you to submit to in this life. And so if this is a, a major struggle for you, if there's no desire whatsoever in your heart to, to obey this command as a, as a young man or, frankly, as just a, a person in the church, well, you need to examine where you are with the Lord because one who is submissive to Christ is one who is submissive to those who are his under-shepherds. You do that through repentance and belief in Christ. Turn from yourself to turn from your sin to turn trusting in whatever it is you're trusting in and turning to Christ as Lord, the one who paid the price for your sin. This leads us to a second instruction, which is found in the second part of verse 5, and it runs through verse 7, which is humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Look at the text He says, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. And all of you, he says, He's now turning and bringing in the rest of the congregation along with those young men who he just called out. And then he gives them in these verses two postures in reference to the instruction to humble yourselves. That first posture is to humble yourself before one another. You see that in the middle of verse five. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. To clothe is to put on or, or adorn oneself with something. The picture here is, is putting on a, a beautiful garment. That garment being humility. Believers are to seek to put on humility in their relationships with one another, Peter says. And this is a decision, and it requires making strides toward doing this. It's a command. Clothe yourselves. It's in the middle voice. Clothe yourselves. You must make a decision and make strides to do this with humility. Humility is the attitude, according to one commentator, the attitude of willingness to lower oneself to serve another. The attitude of willingness to lower oneself and serve another. This is the the opposite of self-exaltation. City of Light has become one of my favorite bands. They band, worship leader, I don't know who they are. They're, They're great. We sing a lot of their songs, main service. We sing a lot of their songs here 
They're, they're very theological. There's a song that I do listen to on repeat often, and it's Your Will Be Done on their newest album. And there's a line in that song that says, My heart is drawn towards self-exaltation. Help me seek your kingdom first. I mean, isn't that so true? Like our hearts are drawn. Like you think of that idea, you just, it's almost like you've been caught with a hook and you're being reeled in towards exalting yourself. We do this in so many ways. Most of them are subtle. I, mean, I don't see any of you up here building some sort of stand and getting up on that stand and saying, exalt me. Right? That would be weird and unhelpful, and we would tell you to get down and go sit down. But subtly we do this. We're so drawn in our conversations, in our own thoughts about ourselves, exalting ourselves, not, not seeing our sin for what it is, not, not calling out our own sin in our hearts to God trying to to justify it before the God who sees everything, that is us being drawn towards self-exaltation. I am better, I am better than what I really am. And we do that. We do that in our own hearts. We do that in the way that we present ourselves. We do that in our conversations. We're just so tempted towards that. So identify with that that, that line in that song, I, I'm drawn toward self, self-exaltation, so what's, what's the antidote? Well, help me, seek, help me see your kingdom first. Help me not to exalt self, God, not in my mind, not in my heart, not in my actions, not in my words, but, but help me to be drawn to your kingdom. Therefore, Peter says we must fight to clothe ourselves with humility. That's why it's so important. Because this isn't our natural state, is it? I mean, we are not humble by nature. Even as Christians with a new nature, uh, we're just not prone to it. God is creating that in us, yes, because we are new creations in Christ. He is, he is drawing that out in us and, and creating that in different ways, different scenarios, different, different trials and stuff. He's using to bring to humbly, but, but it's certainly not where we first turn. Peter says, listen, you want protection? You want protection from Satan? You want protection in the church? You've got to humble yourself. You have to fight to clothe yourself with humility. Even Jesus, who was to be exalted, who is exalted, when he came to earth, he came as a slave. Did he not? He came as the lowest person on the totem pole in life. And even the night that he was to die, where he was, gonna, he was about to be executed after he was prosecuted, he's there with his disciples and Could have done so many things. But he just decided to exemplify for them this humility, this clothing yourself with humility toward one another. 
clothe, and he did that by washing the disciples' feet. To clothe yourself with this virtue involves obeying the commands in Philippians 2, where Paul says to consider others better than yourselves. To constantly consider others better with better than yourselves. And this is in the context of the church, in the context of ministry, in the context of just life within the body of Christ. And he says to to put their interests ahead of your own. That's the practical outworking of this clothing yourself with, with humility. It is that constant awareness that I must seek others ahead of myself. If we're going to do this, we must have a high view of God and a biblical view of self, right? We must see God as the high and exalted one, the one who is glorious above all things, the one who is worthy of our worship, the one who is to be exalted. And we must see ourselves as those who are simply saved by the grace of God and nothing more. Nothing more. We are worthless sinners apart from that grace. It's helpful for us to remember that. This takes intentionality and the proper perspective, doesn't it? The perspective that says, I am not as important as I think I am. We should preach that to ourselves every day. I am not as important as I think I am. I only exist and have the privileges that I do because of God's grace, because of his mercy, and because of his providence. To remember and to realize that God doesn't need me to accomplish his purposes. God can use whatever he wants. I mean, he used a talking donkey in the Old Testament do whatever he wants. We have to realize that. That helps us with this this perspective on humility, on clothing ourselves with humility toward one another, that I'm a wretched sinner saved only by God's grace, and I owe him my life. Therefore, I must serve those whom he puts in my path. That's the perspective. But why is it that we must clothe ourselves with this virtue? Well, there's two reasons. You see it in the text. It says, For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. First, the first reason is God hates pride. God hates pride. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Listen, we throw out that word abomination a lot and we should because our culture is living in an abominable way in its reference towards life and its reference towards God and its reference towards sexuality and marriage and all of those things. It, it is an abomination. But are you seeing what, what it says here? That everyone who is arrogant in heart 
is an abomination to the Lord. (laughs) That's how much God hates pride. We rank sins, don't we? We do that in our thoughts and our minds. That's how we justify it, right? That's how we get by with the sins that we like to do. Is you know, I, I can do this. This is nothing like this. Look at the culture. Look at look at this guy. This really levels out the playing field, doesn't it? Because we we hopefully are not involved in all the abominations that are taking place in our world, but every single one of us has certainly crossed this bridge. Pride, the arrogant in heart. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, again, pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who soars, sows discord among brothers. Friends, God hates pride. And he is opposed, the text says, to the proud. That is to say that he resists the proud, that he stands in opposition to the proud, to those who display, particularly in our text, to those who display a haughty or proud attitude of superiority against others. That's the direct context. God is opposed to those people in the church, those congregants, those members who have an attitude of pride toward other members for some reason, some situation. He is against those who are self-centered and self-sufficient. You can see how Satan can use the proud to assault the people of God, right? What does pride cause within the midst of a group? It causes dissension. It causes faction. It causes division. When you have proud attitudes rising up in a particular scenario and then hitting heads with one another, it's not going to be some nice mending together. That's going to be the shattering of glass, and a dissentious spirit that's going to break out. Your pride, my pride, stands in opposition to what God is doing in his church. Therefore, Peter says, God opposes the proud. What's the result of God's opposition? You know this verse, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a... Your fall may not be immediate, but it will occur at some point. If this is you, if this is your heart, if this is your attitude, and there is no movement towards humility, pride brings destruction and it brings a fall. God's opposition will result in the proud's demise. You see, humility protects. Why? Because it keeps your heart from self-exaltation toward others and toward God, which is the opposite of what Satan is promoting, which is pride and arrogance. 
Humility protects you from that, protects you from that kind of fall, protects you from, from causing that kind of dissension, protects you in the midst of the assaults of Satan. Notice the second reason. It says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. This grace is, is the grace of God that is undeserved. It is, it is the grace to endure and persevere in the midst of the difficulty. You see how it fits into this theme of protection is you remove yourself from pride, you clothe yourself with humility, you are going to be given that undeserved favor of God to, to continue to persevere through whatever difficult scenario you're encountering. These people were encountering the persecution uh, from, from the government, from those who hated Christ and hated them, and they would be able to complete the tasks that God had for them. This is grace to depend upon God and fulfill his purposes and serving other believers in the midst of difficulty. Because that's what we need to be about so often when there's difficult circumstances. And, and you know, we just we don't know where things are going right now. They look like they're going pretty poorly in our country. And, and things are just continuing to, to come in. And the, and the clouds are on the horizon. We've talked about that. There, there's going to be a time when a point of reckoning for believers to say, are you worth your grain, your, your salt? Are you worth your salt? And one of the things that's going to, to cause you to determine that is, first of all, if you're standing in the midst of that, but then what are you doing? Are you standing for yourself? Are you just in it by yourself? Or are you looking to serve one another in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the difficulty? That's what this grace is. It's, it's a grace that helps to fulfill the purposes of serving other believers in the midst of difficulty. Peter's using Proverbs 3.34 here to drive this point home, which says, though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. But not only does this posture of humility toward one another need to be protected, it is also to be toward God. It is to be toward God. Humble yourselves before God. Look at the beginning of verse 7. Beginning of verse 6, rather. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Building off that quote of Proverbs 3, Peter says that in light of God's opposition to the proud and grace toward the humble, believers must also humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. There is protection in coming to God and relying on him rather than relying on yourself or upon other people. The verb, humble yourselves, calls for a duty that demands immediate action. It says, therefore, do this now. <laughs> do this now. Believers must consistently bow beneath the hand of God, acknowledging complete dependence upon him to enable them to persevere against the assaults, the assaults of the evil one. 
This phrase, under the mighty hand of God, is, is an expression of God's omnipotence that pictures God's power on display in Egypt back in the book of Exodus. Whenever you see this mighty hand of God, that's it's taking us back to that time period. It's taking us back to what, what God did, how he put his power on display. And remember that over and over and over, to show Pharaoh, listen, you're not in charge, I'm in charge. And to show his people, listen, I'm going to take care of you. And eventually to bring Pharaoh down and to bring the Egyptians down to save his people, which he promised to do. And you remember how that power was put on display. The flies and gnats, the, the water turned to blood in the entire country. The frogs. I hate frogs. And those things are gross. They're slippery and slimy and I don't like when they jump. Can you imagine an entire country filled with frogs? I just I can't fathom that. That was God's power. <laughs> Told Moses, raise your staff. <sighs> frogs. Can you imagine not having drinking water? We take water for granted here. Everybody's always talking about how we're running out of water. It's nonsense. 70% of the world is water. But in Egypt, in that time, God turned the Nile to blood, <laughs> their source of water that made them so robust economically. Can you imagine that? And how disgusting that would have been? You have all these dead creatures. You have this blood. That was God's hand of power being put on display to saying, listen, <laughs> You guys can keep rejecting me all you want. There you go. Eventually to the point of killing every firstborn in Egypt with the angel of death. And when we think of Exodus, we just went through it, right? We think of Exodus, we think of the power of God, the mighty hand of God, snapping his fingers, so to speak, and power just flooding from his hands and crushing an entire country that had done what? Exalted itself. It is the same God with the same infinite power that wants us to come to him for protection when Satan is firing his arrows at us in the midst of suffering and persecution. The same God who cast from his hand all of that power in Egypt and put it on display for the entire world to see now that we have it recorded for us. It's the same God that says, listen, Come under that same mighty hand now. And I'm going to protect you with that same power. God is able. He is able and he desires to protect his people from the evil one. What is the result of obediently humbling yourself under this powerful, mighty hand of God? Look at verse 7 or verse the end of verse 6 rather. It says that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
Those who humble themselves before God will be lifted high. They will be honored. They they will be rewarded by God. This this brings to mind Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 23, 12, when he said, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Listen, God notices every act of dependence and humility directed at him in this life, and he will reward his people for their endurance against the onslaught of the evil one in this life. Notice when this will happen. He says it will happen at the proper time. Now, this is not promised in this life. It is promised according to God's timetable. J. Adams wrote, part of humility is willingness to patiently wait for things according to God's timetable. And that includes the exaltation in its proper time. This phrase, the proper time, refers to the judgment, when Christ will return and he will make all things right. Why is he telling them this? Because this brings believers comfort and hope, knowing that the day of recompense is coming and God will make true on his promises to his people, that God will reward his people as they stand and endure. Listen, you need to find your hope in that reality. Your humble obedience to God, especially in the midst of suffering and persecution, will be rewarded by God. Peter goes on in verse 7 to further define humbling oneself under the mighty hand of God, saying it like this, casting all your anxiety on on him because he cares for you. A verse that we treasure, a verse that we should treasure, that we should hold dear. Humility involves trust, doesn't it? We're going to humble ourselves before one. We're going to trust them. Trusting God here to take all of your worries and anxieties. Worry is a manifestation of pride, and the antidote to worry is right here. Trust in God. That trust is expressed, as Peter says, by casting all your cares upon the Lord. To cast is to to transfer your concerns of this life to God. You do this in prayer. You see why we're commanded to pray without ceasing. Because we have constant cares and concerns. And when you're under the fire, like these guys were, who Peter was writing to, when you're under suffering, you really have a lot of cares and concerns. And Peter says, don't get wrapped up in your cares and concerns. Don't don't soak in those. Don't even necessarily try to find a way out of those things. He says, do what? He says, cast your cares upon him, upon God. Because why? Because he cares for you. Constant worries arise. Therefore, constantly casting your cares upon God through prayer is critical. Notice Peter says, all your anxiety. This word, all... And the original text is in an emphatic placement. All, every anxiety, every care, 
There is no worry. There is no fear. There is no care. There is no concern. There is no situation that cannot be transferred to God to bear. There is nothing, believer, that you are going through right now in your life. Not one thing that you can't transfer to God to bear. That's what Peter wants these folks to understand. It's what he wants us to understand. He can handle them all. And not only that, he wants them all. He wants them all. He wants to be all sufficient in your life. He wants your complete dependence and trust. He wants that. He desires that. And this trust happens. This casting all your care upon him happens when you're humble. When you're humble, trust protects believers from worry, which is one of Satan's primary assaults. Is it not? Isn't worry something that's a real thing in your life? It's a real thing in my life. Satan wants to subtly start to get in and assault you and assault your mind begin to cause you to go astray in the way that you think and then possibly in your actions, your words, and your motives, all those things. He often does it with worry. Trust protects us. Casting all our cares upon God protects us from that assault. Notice then the magnificent reason why we can cast all of our cares upon God. Love this. See it right there at the end of verse 7. Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. This isn't just some magical formula for worry. This is the God of the universe expressing deep and intimate care for you, believer such as a shepherd has for his sheep. This is an incredibly comforting truth and reality. You need to take this to heart. You need to embrace this. God can be trusted, not just because he is trustworthy, and he is trustworthy, and he is able. He has a mighty hand which will accomplish all of his purposes. But you don't just come to him because of that. You come to him also because he cares deeply about you and he knows you and he knows your concerns intimately. Consider this truth in light of the believers who Peter is writing to here. They were undergoing intense persecution. The clouds had let loose of the rain, so to speak. And Peter says, listen, beloved. In the midst of this, you need to cast all of your cares regarding all of these difficult things upon the God of the universe who loves you with a steadfast love and cares intimately about your well-being. 
In fact, he says he cares more about you than anyone else ever could and more than anyone could ever imagine. And he says the same thing to us too, believer. He cares for you. Therefore, trust him. Cast all of your anxiety upon him in humility of spirit, knowing that he is able to defend you and that he cares deeply about you. Friends, Satan is alive and well. And he wants nothing more than your demise and our demise. Therefore, we must heed these instructions along with the ones that we will consider next time so that we will be able to stand firm in the midst of persecution. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for such a a wonderful place to end contemplating the care of our God the care of our God that is manifested in the fact that you created us and you sustain us, that you know every hair that is on our head, you know every thought that we think before we even think it. And care that is manifested in the reality that you sent your one and only son to take our place. pay for the debt that we owe, and now to give us your spirit, you care for us every single day, enabling us to walk in victory, to fight sin, to continually repent, to long for the glory of Christ, to continue to endure and persevere in this life. Father, thank you for that truth. Thank you for protecting us. Help us to trust you. In Christ's name, amen.